science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium. And well, welcome and aboard. And uh, I mean, of course, we do have to talk a little bit of World Cup today because it is the major event going on in the world aside from politics, although, of course, it's not totally devoid of, of politics. But uh, yeah, we're disappointed, uh, certainly, with um, Canada's loss today, although they had done very well against Belgium and they started off very well against Croatia as well. But uh, although, you know, there's been a lot of improvement since 1986, the only other time Canada appeared in the World Cup, the truth is that we're still not at the same level as the, you know, classy world uh, teams. But uh, maybe by uh, 2026, when the World Cup will be held here in conjunction with Mexico and the U.S., uh, maybe we'll... um, be able to pull off something a bit more uh, impressive. Anyway, I think we can be proud of the way that the team has uh, performed. And uh, while, you know, they didn't win either of the games, and uh, I don't think they will win against Morocco either, but they've played entertaining uh, football. Anyway, uh, I want to tell you a little story, which is uh, World Cup-oriented. I mean, you wouldn't expect that being knocked uh, unconscious by a foreign object uh, becomes a cherished memory. Except when that object happens to be a soccer ball rocketing off the boot of the most famous player in the world at the time. And therein lies a story, my story. This begins with the greatest soccer team ever assembled, the Hungarian national team of the early 1950s. The magnificent Magyars, as they were known led by the incomparable Ferenc Pushkash, put together a string of 32 consecutive international victories. In 1953, they stunned England 6-3 right in Wembley Stadium, first time England had ever been beaten at home by a European side. And then in the rematch in Budapest, England was embarrassed by the stunning score of 7-1. No surprise then that just about everyone conceded the 1950 war for World Cup to be held in Switzerland to the Golden Team. On the way to Switzerland, the team stopped for a training session in Schopron, and that's the town where I was born and lived until 1956, when during the Hungarian Revolution, we managed to crawl under the Iron Curtain and uh, come to Canada. Anyway, uh, back then, as the team was going to uh, on its way to Switzerland, as I said, they stopped for this training session. And my father somehow managed to get us into the practice game. And we were actually allowed to watch from an area beside one of the goals. I don't remember much about the game, but as you will see, that's understandable. Like everyone else, I was focused on Pushkash, whose powerful left foot had beaten opposing international goalies 84 times in 85 games. This time, though, he missed the net, but he didn't miss my head. I remember the ball coming towards me, and then the next thing I can recall is being helped to a bench, then into a taxi. Next day was another memorable one, 
My father came home with a present, a soccer ball. Pushkas had sent it, he told me, as a souvenir of the event. Frankly, I think my father bought the ball, but uh, nevertheless, I did worship it. <clears throat> but you know what? That ball was nothing like the balls being kicked about today. It was made of leather panels stitched together. There was a slit through which a rubber bladder could be stuffed, and the bladder was then inflated with a pump tied up and the opening lay shut like a shoe. As I recall, there were a couple of problems with this ball. When it got wet, it became heavy from the water that was absorbed by the leather. Even worse, after a few months of play, it began to lose its round shape and started to look more like an egg than a ball. Uh, but to us, it didn't matter much. After all, we had a ball to play with, and what a ball! One that uh, maybe had been touched by the great Pushkash. Anyway, the uh, ending of that story wasn't so happy. Um, uh, Hungary, in the preliminary round in Switzerland in the World Cup, beat Germany 8-4. to And uh, they were matched against the Germans in the final. And everyone expected them to win because of their incredible long uh, winning streak. And indeed, they started off being up 2-0 in the first half. Pushka scored a goal. And then the Germans decided to do something about that. And a German player kicked Pushkash in the ankle. Uh, I think it was pretty deliberate, but, you know, there's some controversy about that. Anyway, he couldn't finish the game, and uh, the Germans managed to score three goals and won 3-2. to two. That was 1954. And since that time, I've uh, followed um, the World Cup. Uh, and, uh, of course, there have been some great moments there, uh, like uh, England winning against Germany in 1966. Many of you will remember that. Jeff Hurst scoring three goals. Uh, that was a great game. And then there was the uh, memorable destruction of Brazil by the Germans. I mean, just that was really quite unbelievable in, in, in Rio. Uh, we'll see what surprise comes out of uh, this year's World Cup. But the balls that they are playing with today today are, are, of course, much, much different from the ball that I had when I was young. And uh, today these are really uh, scientific uh, marvels. Uh, they do not lose their, their shape and they do not absorb uh, any water. Uh, and that's because a lot of chemistry has been, uh, you know, involved in the making of these uh, balls. Uh, and that really started in the 1940s when researchers at uh, Standard Oil discovered that isobutylene, a substance derived from petroleum, could be polymerized to make synthetic rubber. It went by the name of butyl rubber. And this was essentially impermeable to air, and it put an end to the frustrating task of constantly inflating soccer balls. Uh, butyl rubber also made automatically sealing valves possible, eliminating the need for laced opening. And then the real revolution came. Synthetic leather made of waterproof polyurethane or polyvinyl chloride replaced leather and eliminated the problem of balls gaining weight when uh, wet. Layers of cushioning fabrics were soon added between the bladder and the covering, which was now constructed of 20 hexagonal and 12 pentagonal panels stitched together with polyester cord. And that ensured perfect roundness. Then in 2006, there was another innovation. A ball made of only 14 thermally bonded panels was introduced, virtually no seams, 
and that improved bounce and accuracy. So while I appreciate the science behind these balls, they certainly don't have the same emotional appeal for me as that deformed, battered leather ball I had to leave behind when we escaped from Hungary in 1956. All right, I have a couple of questions for uh, for you guys. So let's get those uh, out there. How many scientists have won two Nobel Prizes in the same discipline? How many scientists have won two Nobel Prizes in the same discipline? And how many red blood cells are there in a drop of blood? I'll give you some leeway there, of course, because we're looking for a number. Uh, So the two questions, how many red blood cells are there in a drop of blood? Obviously, it's an approximation. And how many scientists have won two Nobel Prizes in the same discipline? Grade A milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkalide, silicon dioxalide. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. Monosodium glutamate, dehydrated calciumate, oil, All right, we are back and uh, keeping you up to date on what is happening in the, in the World Cup. Um, Spain has just scored. So they're up 1-0 against uh, Germany. All right. Um, I think I forgot to tell you the phone number. It's 514-790-0800. And you can also text to 514-800, either with whatever question you may have uh, in the realm of science, or to attempt to answer the question that I posed. How many scientists have won two Nobel Prizes in the same discipline, in the same discipline? And roughly how many red blood cells are there in a drop of blood? So uh, 514-790-0800 or text to 514-800. I want to tell you an interesting, I think somewhat unusual story. And we're going to start with this celebrated performer who was dressed magnificently in a waistcoat, red breeches, white stockings, and black patent leather shoes as he proudly strode to the center of the Moulin Rouge stage. The capacity crowd was thrilled to finally see the most famous French entertainer of the gay 90s. We're talking the 1890s. Not even the renowned Sarah Bernhardt had as great a public appeal or commanded as high a fee as did Joseph Pujol. Pujol was a musician of sorts, but he played no instrument. Rather, he himself was a musical instrument. A wind instrument, one might say. This illustrious entertainer had the ability to suck air into his body by relaxing his abdominal muscles and then to expel the air at will by controlling his rectal sphincter. The unique elasticity of this particular part of Pujol's anatomy allowed him to produce sounds ranging from a clap of thunder to the ripping of cloth. It was said that he elevated passing wind to an art form. Spectators howled in glee when Lopé Thomann, as Pujol became known, proceeded to do a series of imitations of wind-passing techniques. His interpretations of the sonic booms produced by bricklayers, the apologetic tones of nuns, and the barely audible little stochastic bursts released by brides on their wedding night 
usually brought down the house. The act ended with Le Petoman blowing out a candle in his unique fashion. Joseph Pouchot was indeed a scientific curiosity. He discovered his talent one day at the beach when, as a young boy, he held his breath and put his head underneath the water. Almost instantly, he was shocked by a cold, penetrating sensation in his abdomen. Young Joseph rushed out of the water and was astonished to see water rushing out of him. His curiosity aroused, Pujol soon learned that his body could be made to behave like a gigantic pipette, sucking in and releasing water at will. Then came the formidable discovery that he could also inhale and expel air in this extraordinary fashion. And so was born perhaps the most amazing novelty act of all time. Pujol sold the act to the manager of the Moulin Rouge in his inimitable way. Having brought a basin filled with water into the gentleman's office, he proceeded to empty and then refill the container by sitting on it. The bewildered manager was also treated to a series of sound effects and to a rendition of Au Clair de la Lune played on a flute in a decidedly original fashion. It was breathtaking, or perhaps more appropriately, not breathtaking. Pujol got the job, and the rest, as they say, is history. Le Petoman became the toast of Paris. He inspired many imitators who could never match the great man's talent and were quickly blown away. One lady, however, Angèle Thibault, enjoyed a fair degree of success as a female Petoman. She promised no trickery or order and even offered a money-back guarantee. Customers only had to pay if they liked the show. Apparently, though, Madame Thibault did resort to some chicanery because she stopped performing when Pujol sued her, claiming that she used mechanical devices to produce sounds which to him came naturally. Can we learn anything from Pujol's unique gift? He himself recognized the singular nature of his talent and agreed to accept the medical school's offer of 25,000 francs to examine his body after death. However, when the peerless performer passed on in 1892, age of 88, his children were not keen to push back the frontiers of science and did not allow a postmortem. But it is interesting to note that every morning the great Petoman cleansed out his insides in a singular fashion and was never sick a day in his life. Now, interestingly enough, that act was kind of reproduced by an entertainer who called himself Mr. Methane, and he performed at the Just for Laughs uh, Festival, and that goes back, oh, at least 20 years. I don't remember exactly which year it was, but he was here in Montreal, and I interviewed him. He was on with me on CJD, and we discussed his uh, technique of... uh, Blown got a candle, much like Joseph Pujol had done. And indeed, he also, like Pujol, had learned to inhale air through his, his rear. Uh, of course, uh, labeling himself a Mr. Methane was uh, somewhat of a misnomer because what he was expelling was air, not methane. And uh, methane, of course, is... Uh, Uh, expelled, well, I I suppose there are small amounts of natural methane that we expel as well, the product of fermentation. But of course, it is cows that are famous for expelling uh, methane. During their rumination process, they produce this gas, which goes into the environment, 
and it actually is a, a greenhouse gas. So um, uh, there, there is such a thing as expelling methane, but Mr. Methane wasn't doing that. He, he was an English gentleman, and uh, as I recall, he was very entertaining in, in that uh, interview. Uh, unfortunately, I think in, 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 in those days, uh, we didn't record uh, shows on CJD. Uh, now, of course, everything gets recorded and, and we can find almost anything. Although I, I, I kind of seem to remember that uh, I, I recorded that interview myself. I'm going to see if I can, I can find it. I, I have a whole bunch of, of uh, audio tapes that, that I did record back in the so-called good old days. Although I don't even know if I still have a player uh, on which I could listen to them. But I, I, I would love to find that and see if I would play it for you because it was, uh, it was a very interesting uh, interview. And uh, then I remember watching him perform. And uh, I think it was uh, uh, at a gala at the old Théâtre Saint-Denis. And he was all decked out in green, as I recall. And he stood on one side of the stage and the candle was placed a few uh, feet away. And they kind of bent over and uh, indeed managed to blow out the candle. Uh, quite a unique act uh, that was. All right. I do not yet have any answers to my uh, uh, questions. I'm a bit surprised by that because they're very Googleable. I mean, just about everything these days is Googleable. So the question that I asked was, how many scientists have won two Nobel Prizes in the same discipline? And also, how many red blood cells are there in a, a drop of, uh, of blood? And uh, if you think that uh, that is a little bit uh, too difficult, uh, I'll give you another question. What will happen to lemonade if you add ice cubes made from butterfly pea tea? So you're going to take uh, some lemonade and uh, to it add ice cubes that are made from butterfly pea tea. And I imagine that that is also Googleable, but maybe not that, uh, not that easily. So we've got three questions uh, hanging uh, uh, on there. And uh, Germany is still uh, behind 1-0 to Spain as we uh, check the news. Uh, Sign in with CTV to see what's going on in the world, and we'll be right back, uh, hopefully, with an answer to one of the three questions that I posed. So let your fingers dance on that keyboard. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. All right, I'm looking for answers to my questions and also looking for your questions, but answers to my questions first. Uh, I think we have Jean-Pierre on the line. Jean-Pierre. Hi. Hi. Dr. Joe, can I ask first another question? Do you sure. know a guy named Peter Kellen? Peter? Who? Peter Kellen. No. He was what? a Hungarian. He was crazy about the, he was crazy about the guy you talked about, the, the great player. Anyway. So I'd like to answer the question about the two uh, Nobel Prizes. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Uh, there are two. There actually are three. Okay, well, there's uh, okay, Madame we'll, Curie. We'll, 
What? Madame Curie. No, no. Listen to the question that I asked. Two Nobel Prizes in the same discipline. Okay, now, it is true that you, Marie Curie to, uh, won two Nobel Prizes, but one was in chemistry and one was in physics. Okay, I'm sorry. The other okay, one was... Who, who was uh, your other one? Einstein? No, no. No? No, he, no, no, he did not win two Nobel Prizes. He only won one. All right, so we're still looking for that. Uh, Nick texted in an answer to that, and he said Marie Curie, again, would not correct. And he also said Linus Pauling. Linus Pauling also was a double Nobel Prize winner, but not in the same discipline. He won a Nobel Prize in chemistry and a Nobel Prize in physics, or in peace. Uh, so now I, I'm still looking for three scientists who won... Nobel Prizes in the same discipline. One did it in physics and the two others did it in, in chemistry. <clears throat> Altogether, there, were, there are five people who have won two Nobel Prizes. And, uh, uh, of course, Linus Pauling and Marie Curie, as, as we said, are, uh, are, are two of them. And uh, uh, also there was... Uh, well, no, I don't want to give away the... Uh, the answer here yet all right so we'll hold up on that so i'm still looking for the two scientists who won two nobel prizes well actually three three scientists who won double nobel prizes in the same discipline that's the question in the same discipline all right now let me uh, get to something else which is going to answer the question that i asked this morning on the trivia show which is something that i do all the time and uh, then of course i elaborate on it in the afternoon so let me elaborate back in, in 1878 a british court ruled against frederick walton no Michael Nairn's company was not guilty of trademark infringement. That was the ruling. Nairn was indeed free to use the term linoleum, which had been coined by Walton, its inventor. But now, the judge said, this was public property because Walton had failed to register it as a trademark. So Michael Nairn capitalized on the ruling and began to widely advertise the linoleum his company was manufacturing in the Scottish town of Kirkcaldy. Seeing his success, a number of other companies set up in the town, making Kirkcaldy the linoleum capital of the world. And I probably didn't pronounce that right. There's a Scottish pronunciation, so if anyone wants to help out with that, give it a try. <clears throat> As the often told story goes, sometime in the 1850s, Walton noticed that a curiously flexible solid skin formed on top of a jar of oil paint that had been left open. He began to play with the rubbery material and hit upon the idea of using it as a floor covering. Knowing that the paint was formulated with linseed oil, he came up with linoleum from linseed and oleum from the Latin for oil. Anyway, that's the romanticized version of the story, and it is usually the case there's often more to it. Walton's father was actually a manufacturer who had been looking for applications of rubber and had already invented a simple device that used rubber teeth to separate cotton bowls into fibers. Young Frederick worked in the laboratory of his father's factory. 
and was experimenting with substance, substitutes for rubber, which at that time was a very expensive commodity. His mind was therefore primed for capitalizing on the observation that may really have involved that jar of old paint. Walton's first idea was to make a flexible varnish for book covers because his father was in that business of making book covers, but it didn't work well. However, he was also aware that back in 1843, Elijah Galloway had heated a mixture of powdered cork, rubber, and linseed oil to make a floor covering that he called camptulicon, from the Greek kamptos for flexible and ulos for thick. Although it caused a sensation when first launched at the International Exhibition of London in 1862, due to the high price of rubber, camptulicon was unable to compete with floor cloth. And that was a floor covering that had been introduced in the 18th century by Nathan Smith, who had painted canvas with a mix of linseed oil, tree resin, and beeswax. Although floor cloth was popular, and it did provide insulation from the cold floors at the time, it didn't wear well and suffered from cracked paint. Walton now thought he could do better. Linseed oil, he knew, was the key. Oil paints, basically pigments suspended in oil, expressed from seeds of the plant that we know as linseed or flax, had been used by European painters since the 15th century. When exposed to the air, these oils would harden and bind the pigments to a wooden or a cloth surface. And of course, well, I mean, we're familiar with all those old oil paintings. I mean, the Mona Lisa, of course, is a classic example. The chemistry was not known at the time, but today we know that double bonds between carbon atoms in fat molecules uh, allow for the reaction of these fats with oxygen of the air. And that leads to the formation of a, a solid polymer. And that's what, that's what happens when that oil paint hardens. Anyway, Walton, realizing that reaction with air was important, began to work on ways to enhance the process. And he eventually developed a complex method of boiling the linseed oil in large vats and then impregnating thin cotton sheets with this oxidized oil. Those sheets were then ground to a pulp, combined with wood flour, cork dust, rosin from the sap of pine trees, and powdered limestone to form a granulated mixture that was pressed between heated rollers onto a backing made of jute. And this product was linoleum. It was thicker, more waterproof, and more resistant to wear than floor cloth. Walton patented the process. But when the patent expired in 1877, various factories in Kirkcaldy began to produce linoleum. One of these was the one that Michael Nairn had established back in 1847 to manufacture floor cloth. He had been derided by locals. It was, they referred to his factory as Nairn's Folly, thinking that it could never uh, make it. That was now forgotten as Mayer's switch to producing linoleum helped make Kirkcaldy into a boom town with some 4,000 workers employed in the seven linoleum factories. There was no doubt about what those factories were churning out. Why? Because all of Kirkcaldy was permeated with the rancid odor of compounds like hexanol and hexanoic acid, 
which are oxidation products of linoleic acid, one of the prime fatty acids in linseed oil. The rank smell that clung to workers' clothes and hair is immortalized in the last lines of a famous poem, The Boy in the Train, that has been recited by generations of Scottish primary school students. Of course, I can't do it in the proper Scottish accent, but this is the way that lines go. For I can myself, by the queer-like smell that the next stop, Skirkaldi. And that queer smell began to fade after the Second World War for a number of reasons. Stiletto heels had made an appearance and linoleum did not like them. Also, the price of linseed oil rocketed up as a new use for it, namely in animal feed, was found. And then came a stake through the heart when a new kid on the block made an entrance. That was vinyl flooring, cheaper, less smelly than linoleum. By 1969, linoleum sales had slumped to such an extent that the Kirkcaldy factories had ceased production and were demolished, including the famed Nair's works. But... Don't write the obituary for linoleum just yet. The material uh, is making uh, a reappearance. And the new a company called Forbo, or actually in memory of Nairns, is, is called Forbo Nairns, has resuscitated the process and is now is making uh, linoleum again uh, because vinyl has, is now being clouded because of the phthalates that it uh, releases. And uh, so uh, maybe we'll see uh, linoleum uh, again come to the forefront. But again, this factory now, although it's not in the original location in Krokadi, but there's a factory now producing linoleum again. There's one in Germany as well, and there's one in the U.S. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Dr. Joshua. Germany has just scored, and uh, they are now tied with Spain at 1-1 with about uh, three minutes left. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Discoveries for happiness in a fabulous array of never ending searches on by men who dare and plan. Making modern miracles from molecules. All right, let's get to Stephanie, who's been waiting. Stephanie. Stephanie. Hello. Hi. Hi, Dr. Joe. I enjoy your show. Thank you. Um, Occasionally we hear in the news about um, Molotov cocktails being being thrown into the the windows of uh, Mm -hmm. retail outlets. And um, I'm just wondering, what, what is it that comprises um, a Molotov cocktail? Well, actually, I, I can speak somewhat, you know, expertly to that because I actually saw Molotov cocktails being used. And uh, that was uh, 1956 during the Hungarian Revolution when um, I saw actually teenage boys throwing them at Russian tanks. And uh, one of them actually was thrown into the uh, opening of the tank and caused the fire inside. Uh, And uh, so what is it? Uh, Molotov cocktail is a very simple device. 
It is usually a jar uh, made of glass that is filled with gasoline. And uh, there's a rag that is uh, dipping into it and they're saturated in, uh, in gasoline. The rag is lit and then the thing is thrown. And uh, when it hits a surface, of course, the glass breaks and the gasoline uh, explodes into a ball of fire. So that's the simple uh, Molotov cocktail. There, there are some more sophisticated versions which will have a, a relatively simple timing mechanism uh, in there. Uh, and uh, it will have, um, again, filled with, with gasoline and a glass bottle, but inside it is a balloon with a little bit of sulfuric acid and, um, and sugar. And the reaction between the sugar and the sulfuric acid creates a lot of heat that, that melts the balloon and uh, causes the uh, gasoline to explode so that you have a timing element uh, in there. But the simplest one is the one that I saw back in 1956 being curled at the Russian tanks were jars of gasoline with a rag that was lit. So that's the Molotov cocktail. And of course, the reason it was called M Molotov cocktail uh, was after Molotov, who was the Russian, I, I guess he was the foreign foreign minister, and uh, he was not liked. So does that answer your question? All right, we also have Kenny on the line. Kenny. Hi, good afternoon, Joe. How are you doing? Okay. You got an answer uh, for me. For two Go ahead. The name are, uh, is it, is, the two are names are, is, is that Arthur Novo and John Bardeen? John Bardeen won two Nobel Prizes in physics. This is correct. But there, there are two others who won in the same discipline. All right. So I got it right. So who, who was your other one? Uh, oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, I, was on, I was on PJD. Sorry. Sorry. All right. Yeah, he was, he's right about one of them. It was John Bardeen. Uh, the other two who are double Nobel Prize winners in the same discipline are Frederick Sanger and uh, Barry Sharpless, and they both won in, in chemistry. Uh, as we said earlier, Linus Pauling and Marie Curie are also Nobel Prize winners, uh, but not in the same discipline. Marie won one in chemistry, one in physics, and Linus Pauling won in chemistry and in, in peace. And here's a further addendum. Linus Pauling is the only one in history to have won two unshared Nobel Prizes. Marie Curie shared her first one with uh, her husband, Pierre, who uh, unfortunately after was killed in a tragic carriage accident. And so her second Nobel Prize was unshared. But, but Linus Pauling was the only one to have two unshared uh, Nobel uh, Prizes. John Bardeen uh, was a physicist uh, with two Nobel Prizes. And the first one uh, was for the transistor. And boy, did that ever change our life. Because whenever you're watching TV, you're using a computer, you're, you know, you're listening to the radio right now there are transistors that are involved. And then he won the second Nobel Prize, also in physics, for his work on semiconductors, uh, which are, of course, also uh, important in, in um, electronics. And uh, Frederick Sanger uh, is a double Nobel Prize winner, 
both of his were in chemistry. And the first one was for determining uh, the amino acid sequences of proteins. Proteins, as you know, are made of amino acids and they're linked together in, in a chain. And many, many amino acids join together to make a protein. And uh, he found a way to determine exactly which amino acids are linked together in what sequence to make a protein. And for that, he, he got the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1958. And then in 1980, he won the award once again in the same category for developed a, a method to, quote, read DNA. And that was really the first step in the study of the human genome. And uh, it was Sanger who determined the base sequence of nucleic acids, that is, of adenine, guanine, cytosine, and uracil. And these are the letters, of course, which constitute what we refer to as the book of life, you know, the, the DNA found in the nucleus of, uh, of every cell. Uh, so there are your double Nobel Prize winners. So again, let me repeat, there, there were five people who have won two Nobel Prizes in history, uh, Frederick Sanger, Linus Pauling, John Bardeen, Marie Curie, and Barry Sharpless. Linus Pauling, the only one to win two unshared Nobel Prizes. And uh, Frederick Sanger, John Bardeen, and Barry Sharpless were the ones who won two Nobel Prizes in the same discipline. And you know how hard it is to win a Nobel Prize in the first place. Winning two is, is just a fantastic uh, achievement. All right, uh, we're coming to the end here, and the uh, Spain-Germany game has just come to an end, and it's a 1-1 draw, pretty uh, exciting uh, game. And uh, so the hunt goes on for the World Cup. Unfortunately, uh, we will not be in it. Uh, that is, Canada will not be uh, in it. We still have a game to play against Morocco, and uh, if we could uh, pull off a win there, uh, that would uh, still be something to come home with some points from uh, uh, from this uh, major uh, major event. And uh, so, uh, what am I going to do? Uh, unfortunately, I can't uh, hope for Canada to go through anymore. Uh, my next allegiance is to England. Uh, because I do watch a lot of English Premier League soccer, I, I like them, and uh, I I would see like to see a repeat of uh, 1966, which was a final between Germany and uh, and England, and uh, that was a great game with uh, the Germans tying it up in the last minute of play at two two, and then uh, England scoring two goals in extra time. Ah, those are great memories. But uh, that's it for today. We are out of time. But rest assured, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>